the oceans are the closest that any of us who are alive today will ever come to visiting another planet. So the ocean environment really is a different planet. It really is foreign. So anything that comes from it has that kind of mystique. This is an environment we can't function in without the aid of, say, scuba gear, but it's an alien environment to us. So here is this artifact from the alien environment. Book Society podcast, welcome. My guest today is Sandy Sheehy. She writes about human relationships with the natural environment, which is a pretty cool topic. Her work has appeared in Town and Country, Forbes, House Beautiful, Self, Working Woman, Money, and many other fancy, amazing international magazines. She has written four books, Texas Big Rich in 1990, Connecting, The Enduring Power of Female Friendships, Deserts of the Heart, which is a novel, and most recently, Imperiled Reef, The Fascinating Fragile Life of a Caribbean Wonder. The book that Sandy Sheehy chose today is The Sound of the Sea by Cynthia Barnett from 2021, W.W. Norton. It's pretty amazing. It's about shells. If you thought you knew about seashells, you were wrong. There is a whole book about seashells, and there is an entire field of science dedicated to seashells that I did not know about called conchology. And that might be the fact of the book for me that there is a word for a shell scientist. Sandy, welcome to the podcast. Tell me, why did you pick this book? Oh, I picked it for a couple of reasons. One is that it came out almost exactly at the same time as my book on the Mesoamerican Barrier Reef and the ways in which they intersect and ways in which Cynthia Barnett has done a fabulous job of digging into some detail. She writes in a way that is almost poetic in style. It's very evocative, especially for journalistic writing. She and I are both journalists. But it's very evocative. And she also has a warmth and a kind of personal wonder that attaches to what she's writing about. And the third thing is that she also is writing about human beings' interactions with the subjects, with shells, with the oceans, with the environment more generally. And she digs back amazingly into prehistoric times in a way that makes her, I would say, archaeology and anthropology almost as interesting as her conchology. Yeah, she goes beyond prehistory into geologic time, really. It's hundreds of millions of years, this book covers, because mollusks, the inhabitants of seashells before we find them, are some of the oldest life on the planet. Do you collect shells? I did as a child. My family moved every couple of years because of my father's work. And so my seashell collection wound up being left behind, alas, in one of those moves. But I love them. One of the things I love to do when I am at my residence in Galveston is to just walk along the sand at low tide and pick up shells. It's also a very entertaining thing to do with children or visitors who don't live by the seashore. And you can imagine, even with the 
imperfect shells with broken pieces of shells. Imagine how far they've come. You're an ocean expert and an avid scuba diver. What did you learn from reading this book that you didn't know already? Oh, my. I learned so many things. One thing that I learned was that one of the evidences of Neanderthals being people with culture, with rituals, and so on, is some of the shell ornaments that were found, for example, in burial sites with Neanderthals who had died. That was an eye-opener for me. I had forgotten, I knew sort of vaguely that shells had been used for money at certain points in history, but I had forgotten how important the particular cowrie, that's known as the money cowrie, was in trade and how much evidence piles or even little collections of these cowrie shells in places far distant from where these mollusks were actually found, what that showed us about the interactions between groups of human beings. She talks about the history of mollusks and then gets into the history of shells throughout humanity, and pretty much every civilization has had some kind of relationship with seashells, either as a collected object or as an ornament or as money or as evidence of their habitation. I remember reading about Tyre and Carthage, and one of the ways we know where those cities were is that these giant shell mounds where they were harvesting mollusks to make purple dye. Another thing is how a particular shell, like one of the whelk shells, how it became clearly more valuable as far as the archaeological evidence goes, the farther it was from where it was originally harvested. We can kind of understand that, I think, just like seafood gets more expensive the farther inland you go. But particular evidence of how precious these things were and how they were recognized for their ornamental value, too, but also given sacred meaning. So I discovered an entire civilization in this book that I did not know existed. And one of the through lines of this podcast is Native American heritage and Native American archaeology. And we've had a few archaeologists on. We've had a few people who have opinions and learned opinions about this kind of history. I did not know about the Cahokia civilization, which was native to what is currently St. Louis. The reason that we know about them is from the shell mounds. But they had these cities laid out on grids, these really large and intricate cities and civilizations and the shell mounds that held their burial sites for their kings and queens were almost entirely dredged as fill or just cut through to create highways and neighborhoods. And so the people of St. Louis are literally dancing on the graves of Native Americans as we all are here in the United States, unfortunately. But I was amazed to learn about that and that this civilization was essentially discovered because of the shells that they found that were sort of out of place. Yeah, they were looking to build roads and fortunately or unfortunately, shells help produce a very good solid road base that doesn't melt in the heat and so on. You can put asphalt over it. It can be used for the foundations of buildings and some of the pre-European Native American groups did use them for exactly that. Barnett points out that some of the platforms probably had wooden structures built on top of them. 
the shell platforms had wooden structures built on top of them that would be more stable because they had these shell foundations. In parts of Florida, where there was a culture that developed in sort of what's the Everglades areas and the islands of West Florida, that they were able to elevate their structures above hurricane level because they had these shell foundations. But we did destroy so much of it, not just the shells themselves, but what was buried with them. You know, everything from children's toys to very sacred and precious objects. Yeah, I mean, as we've done, you know, and then she talks about shell mounds in San Francisco that were literally just used for fill or built on top of. And I also just should amend the Cahokia. That's not their name. That's the name that we gave them were discovered because the native people knew they were there through their stories. So they were discovered by archaeology, not discovered in the sense that I guess nothing's really discovered. You know, human civilizations, obviously, if you discover a civilization, there was a civilization there before. So you're just making yourself aware of it. We can say Europeans discovered or Europeans became aware of these civilizations because of these mounds in saying that my family moved every few years because of my father's work. I did spend junior high and high school in St. Louis. And that was at a time when the awareness of these mounds was just becoming a very exciting thing, especially for Kids, it was very exciting because it was something their parents hadn't known about. But I remember learning that these mounds had shapes that were mostly visible from the air. What kind of shapes? Well, shapes like coils. And she describes one of these coiled mounds where apparently a king was buried, but there was a pathway, a circling leftward circling pathway to the top. And it was all, as I recall, very precisely engineered. It wasn't just any old kind of more or less spiral. It was a very precise spiral. Helicopters and planes first started flying over. They looked out and said, what's that? This was around the time of the ancient Greeks. You know, we attribute that kind of geometry to them, but that was happening here way before then. Well, I think the ones near St. Louis were actually more the time of the Vikings. The ones in Florida were earlier, but the culture that flourished near what's present-day East St. Louis was 900 or 1,000 of the Common Era to about the time a couple of hundred years before the Europeans arrived. So I was reading through the section that she has about Conchalomania, where in the 1790s or thereabouts, the Dutch and really the entirety of Europe got obsessed with shells to the point where they were buying shells at auction for three or four times the price of master paintings. And she talks about one auction in the 1790s where a Vermeer sold for 43 guilders and some special shell sold for 273 guilders. Now, I don't know how much a guilder is worth, but I know that a shell is not worth more than a Vermeer today. And it has a name. It's Conchalomania, that people got into this insane market of collecting these shells whose value inflated and inflated and inflated because people were collecting them. And it was around the same time as one of my favorite bubbles, the Dutch tulip mania bubble, where Dutch people were speculating on the value of tulips. And at this time, 
the Dutch were sort of the masters of the universe, rulers of the world. And in 1634, out of nowhere, this tulip bulb market emerged. And by 1637, it had been drained of all its value. And when I read this, I thought of cryptocurrency. And then today, as I'm interviewing you, <laughs> cryptocurrency is taking a dive. Shells have some intrinsic value, but not really. They're products of nature, and they exist pretty much everywhere on the planet. But people just really get obsessed with them. Why do you think people are so obsessed with seashells even today? Well, I think, first of all, the oceans are the closest that any of us who are alive today will ever come to visiting another planet. So the ocean environment really is a different planet. It really is foreign. So anything that comes from it has that kind of mystique that it is truly exotic. This is an environment we can't function in without the aid of, say, scuba gear, or maybe we can briefly go down as free divers, but it's an alien environment to us. So here is this artifact from the alien environment. I think another reason that they're fascinating is that we have in human aesthetic valuation of things, balance, symmetry, even studied asymmetry really has an appeal. You know, you can look at a fractile or you can look at a geometric, at a cube or a cube spinning, anything like that that just appeals to the eye. I'm sure that people at earlier ages who had a different outlook on, say, religion and science and so on, would have said, well, someone divine must have been in the design of this. You're allowed to say God with a lowercase g on this podcast if you want. Say God or gods <laughs> or the goddess of something or other. And you can do things like with conks and some whelks. You can hold them to your ear. You hear a noise. You can blow through. You can cut the end off a conk and blow through it and make a musical instrument. There are all of these wonderful things that shells do. As we learned more about how they were created by actual living animals using the chemicals from the ocean and the ocean floor, that became even more fascinating. How does that get imprinted in whatever animal it is to make this very functional home for itself that protects it from predators or maybe improves its ability to catch prey and withstand the ocean currents and so on. I mean, they're fascinating. And there's something that could catch our attention even as little children. My father always liked shells that had something wrong with them, a hole in them, or something that made them not perfect. He thought, you know, you go to the Natural History Museum and you see perfect shells. Well, what about this one that's not perfect? Uh, yeah, one of the things I learned from this book is the shells with the tiny holes in them, that's because they got eaten. Yes, they did. Several kinds of mollusks have an acid that they use to bore into the shells. Octopuses do, too, that they can bore into these shells and eat the mollusks inside. And so when you find a clamshell with a hole in it that looks perfect for a necklace, it's because that clam met a gory end. And that's another thing I think she makes very clear, 
is that shells function in the ocean environment. They have a definite function. And they also nowadays are sort of like canaries in a mine shaft. People who are wanting to deny human contributions to the warming of the oceans, to climate change, point out that the oceans have warmed and cooled. You know, they're kind of a heat sink, frankly, for the Earth. So they go through periodic cycles of warming and cooling. And that's true. The current one is more extreme, and that is because of human activity since the start of the Industrial Revolution. But the thing that's happening now that's even a greater threat and has not looked on with as much attention is the acidification of the oceans. And the pH level of the oceans has remained relatively constant over eons and eons. And now the pH is dropping. They're getting more acid. As the carbon in the atmosphere becomes carbonic acid in the ocean, it leaches out the calcium and the calcium carbonate that seashells and also hard corals need to build their structures. This is a huge problem, obviously. And the thing that I found so fascinating about her book and about seashells is that seashells are an essential ingredient in concrete. So this means that the way that we get our roads is that the sun shines on the ocean, an organism like an algae photosynthesizes that into glucose, and then a mollusk eats that glucose in order to collect calcium carbonate and make a shell that we then use to make roads. So everything really comes from the energy of the sun. And all of this marine life is just ways of literally turning sunlight into rocks, which is crazy to think about. One of the things she does say, though, is that mollusks seem to be pretty resistant to the acidification and have been modifying their shells in different ways. But the real question is whether they can keep up with that. Organisms are amazingly adaptable. Almost in the span of a human lifetime, you can see changes that they make to adapt. It's one reason why hybridization and other kinds of agricultural technology are able to produce corn that isn't a little stubby thing like native people used, but are these big, huge ears of corn. Or tomatoes, on the other hand, that don't taste like much, but ship easily. That can be done because adaptation can work rather quickly. But the question now is whether so much is being thrown at the ecosystem that it can't adapt. It's going to lose its ability. You know, it's going to be overwhelmed. And that's the concern. One of the things she writes about on this point is that, I don't remember who she referenced, but he has a theory that human beings evolve in three stages. And the first stage is to gather things like just pick up feathers and pelts and, you know, whatever is around in nature and use it to fashion things. And that this is healthy, but it leads to sort of dogmatic and rigid lifestyles. And I think that was pretty much most of prehistory. The second stage that we're in now is to drill into the earth and extract resources that way and extract energy that way. That I think is our industrial age, the age of oil, the, you know, Anthropocene as we're calling it now. And then the third stage, she calls the productive stage where we are essentially farmers of the earth and we know which fish to introduce into which rivers and just exactly how much to harvest here and how much ocean acidification we can take and all that stuff. And, you know, that's sort of the utopia that I think everybody 
a little bit dreams of, or I guess everybody softly dreams of, but doesn't do much to work towards. So I'm wondering, do you think that America or do you think that this world that we live in right now, maybe not America, but just the entire world will arrive at stage three? Well, it's certainly going to be a photo finish if it does arrive. I think we have right now too much of a linking of our individual self-worth with what we consume and what we have available to consume. I think the COVID quarantines and isolations and guaranteed government assistance, that that was a short, probably too short-lived an experiment to have really solid results. But we saw that when people were given enough to provide for the basic needs, there still was a desire to consume more. Otherwise, Jeff Bezos wouldn't have gotten so much richer off Amazon because we were all in our houses. People didn't say, oh, now I've got enough to order food delivered and to keep my home comfortable so I can just relax. No, that isn't what happened. I mean, people shopped. And it doesn't mean that everybody spent all their time shopping. But we made it possible for people to shop and to buy all manner of things, which made them feel better about themselves. If in order to get to that third stage, we're going to have to unhitch our feeling about our own self-worth from what we consume. I think that's going to be a big leap for human beings. I think so, too. And I think that's a great place to stop talking about this book and move on to talking about your book. I'm going to ask you about Mexican lobster fishing in the next episode. And I will hear your opinion about whether or not Mexican lobsters are inferior to their cousins in the Northeast, the Maine and New England lobsters. Next week, we will hear from Sandy Sheehy. We will talk about lobsters. We will talk about her book, Imperiled Reef, and we will talk about some more interesting ocean stuff. All right. See you then. If you like this podcast, please rate and review it. It's very important. It really helps the show out. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, scroll down to the section where it says rate and review. Hopefully you're going to select five stars and maybe write us a nice review. Or if you don't like the podcast, write us a bad review. That's fine too. The Book Society podcast is produced by me, Lucas Cantor, and by Santiago Ramones, who has his own show called Bit Depth, which you should also check out. The best way to find out about Book Society is to go to the Book Society website, booksocietypod.com. Get on the mailing list. I'm going to send out a newsletter. You know, human civilizations. Obviously, if you discover a civilization, there was a civilization there before. So you're just making yourself aware of it. I'm just correcting myself the way that Paulette Stevies would correct me if she were on the podcast. So, <laughs> and rightfully so. Thank <laughs> you.